Today we are continuing on in our series called Identity, where we are looking at uh, our identity as a church community and, and who we aim to be here in Nazareth. And then as part of that, our hope is to also draw out some of the things that are part of our identity as, as individuals, who, who God says we are and who we get to be uh, when we're followers of Jesus. If you were here last week or you listened to the podcast, you know that we talked about uh, our identity as a church and individuals being found uh, in, in uh, being gospel-centered. And if you remember, the word gospel is actually uh, originally a, a Greek word that meant good news in the language that the scriptures were written in. Um, we want to be a church and a community that is centered on the good news. We talked about how we need good news because there is a whole lot of brokenness and bad news around us. Uh, but even more than that, the cause of the bad news is actually inside of all of us, and it's called sin. That's what Scripture calls sin. Uh, but if you remember, the good news is that despite our brokenness and sin, humanity is loved by God, and he promised a long time ago to do something about that sin and about the enemy of God uh, who caused it to come into the, the picture in the first place. Do you remember that? We, we talked about Adam and Eve uh, when they rebel against God and they sin against God, that, that God still moves towards them and he covers them uh, with a sacrificed animal to, to keep them warm and to care for them in that way, in a very tangible way. But if you remember, he also promised that, he promised to Eve that from her lineage would come one who would crush the enemy of God. And, and, and what we see is that God was setting up what we see in the narrative scripture from start to finish, that, that he would crush his enemy. He was setting up this fight of good versus evil, of light versus darkness, of hate versus love, and ultimately of life versus death. Because you see, what God wants for humanity is full life, but the enemy of God wants its demise and its death. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you an article that I read this morning um, online. It says this, Consider the past week in America. Wednesday, a white man with a history of violence shot and killed two African-Americans, seemingly at random, at a Kentucky Kroger, uh, it's a grocery store, following a failed attempt to barge into a black church. After mail bombs were being sent to people who had been criticized by the president, a suspect was arrested Friday, a man who had railed against Democrats and minorities with hate-filled messages online. And Saturday morning, a man shouting anti-Semitic slurs opened fire at a Pittsburgh synagogue in our state, just across the state killing 11 people attending Jewish services. Those three incidents in 72 hours shared one thing, hate. Do you hear that? The, the hatred that they share? And, and we stand with our brothers and sisters, uh, sort of our, <clears throat> our Jewish ancestors here, even in this state, who, who were being murdered because of hate. And, and obviously, this is what the enemy of God wants. He will do anything to keep you addicted to whatever it is that you're addicted to, keep you ashamed of your pasts, fighting with your spouse, full of rage at work, quietly regretful of decisions you've made. He'll do anything he can to keep us from caring for our neighbors domestically and globally. He loves that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. He loves that our politicians do more fighting to keep their jobs than they do to fight for the hurting and the broken among us. And the list goes on. The, the enemy of God does not want to see the peace and full life that God intended in the Garden of Eden for humanity. But here's the gospel, friends, that we can find our identity in. We can rest in God's ultimate and continuing victory. I'm going to read something from uh, Colossians 1. This is a letter that Paul writes to the church at Colossae. And 
Uh, we're going to be bouncing in and out of this today, so if you want to be in Colossians 1, you can find it. And I'm going to start with verse 12. Paul says this, I give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You hear it there, this concept of moving from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's the good news that we are centered on here at Hope Alliance, that God is ultimately victorious over evil and sin and death, and that we get to live in the freedom and the peace and the hope and the love that that brings. That God ultimately defeats the enemy and moves us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. That the sin and death that started with Adam and Eve no longer needs to enslave us and make us fearful or make us ashamed because God has defeated them and is continuing to defeat them. That by the power of the gospel, the world can be transformed one human heart and mind at a time. That our individual and corporate sin can be dealt with. That the world can be changed for the better because of God at work among us. And it all goes back to the first part of the gospel that we covered last week. That God loves humanity and will crush the enemy and the sin he brought into the world. So if you remember from last week, kind of to start to combat that sin in the world, God sets aside uh, a man, Abraham, and and his wife, Sarah, and they become the family of Israel, this nation that, that was supposed to, to follow God and to worship him. And he promised that other nations would be blessed by them and that God would be their God and they would be his people. God was setting them up to be people of good news, a people that would live out that love of God and bless the world around them. And God was making good on his promise to Eve by preserving her family line making good on his promise that one would come from her lineage that would crush the enemy of God. But what you see in Scripture, if you know the Old Testament, you know that again and again in, in, in Israel, this family, this nation, chosen by God to be his people on earth, chosen to be a blessing to the world around them, chosen to ultimately crush the enemy of God, they continually stumble and fall away from God. You know, they start fighting with one another, they start backstabbing one another, start conniving against one another. They even sell one of their own brothers into slavery. Like, you think your Thanksgiving family get-togethers are stressful. Like, imagine if this is your environment, right? And, and so they're, they're fighting against one another, and eventually God sends a famine into the land. And like I talked about before, God sometimes does things like this to get our attention, to turn our attention back to him. But they end up just moving to Egypt because they know there's food there. And, and they go there and, 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 and they start to prosper there. They start to put down roots there and they become more and more numerous. So numerous that the Egyptians get scared of them and decide to enslave them before they get too powerful. This people of God who were supposed to be living in a land that God had promised them living as image bearers of God and being a light to the world to model for people what godly worship looked like, they found themselves enslaved in Egypt to, to a cruel pharaoh, a cruel evil leader who worked them to the bone. And rather than living as image bearers of God, making him famous, they're instead making the image of Pharaoh famous. And, 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 and rather than you know, uh, living to make God known and to be a, a, a rescuer and to crush the enemy of God under their feet, they're instead being crushed under the feet of Egypt. How will they be the rescuer of humanity if they are in need of rescuing themselves? I mean, this is bad news, right? A few years ago, uh, I went on a trip 
a, a fishing trip up in Canada. I love being outdoors and, and fishing and stuff. And we went on this fishing trip and, and there were four of us and we went in, in two canoes and we were going like seven hours like north up into Canada and we were taking these canoes and they were really, you know, heavy with all of our equipment for the week and gas and tent materials and food and stuff. And, and so they had motors on the back, like there's no way we're going to paddle all that far. We're not that tough, you know? And, and so we, we take these two canoes, we put them into the river and we're going to go like 30 miles upstream. But at the start of the river where we put in, it was kind of like a lake. It was really wide. And, um, we were with my wife's uncle, Uncle Don, and, and Uncle Don warned me that, that going across this lake was a little bit more dangerous than it looked, that sometimes the wind could come up or the waves could come up enough that it would swamp the canoe or capsize it. So just that we needed to be careful, keep the front of the canoe going into the waves and all. So we did that. We made it across fine, had a great trip. But he was, he was telling me just a, a couple years ago that he went on another trip, the same canoe trip, two canoes, and uh, his sons were in one canoe and he was in another one. And and his sons were going across this lake, and I guess it was raining, and it was kind of windy, and eventually their canoe capsized. And all of the, the materials are lashed into the canoe, so when it flips over, it doesn't sink to the bottom. The stuff for the week doesn't sink to the bottom, but it makes the canoe incredibly heavy and difficult to flip back over. So they're floating with their canoe, and they're calling for Uncle Don to come and rescue them. So Uncle Don comes over with his canoe, he turns around, he comes back to get them, but when he gets to them, the rope that he was going to use to pull them to safety ends up getting caught around his prop on his canoe, it stalls his motor, and eventually what happens is he capsizes as well. So now they're both floating in the water, and eventually they paddle their way, they paddle for like an hour to get to this island, and they, you know, they figured it all out. But here's the point, right? This is the situation that Israel finds themselves in. They, rather than being the rescuer, they're in need of rescue as well. And, and so this is the, the, the place that we find them in, in Egypt, enslaved to this other nation. And it's then that they start crying out to God to rescue them, to make good on his promise, to return his presence to them and take them to the promised land. And after 400 years, God sends a man to lead them out of Egypt to go head-to-head with this evil leader, Pharaoh, and to bring the people into the promised land. But it would take a massive move of God on their behalf to make it happen. And move God does. God, in his divine providence, sees to it that a baby boy is born amidst the slavery. An Israelite boy, born as the son of a slave. You see, Pharaoh knew there were too many slaves being born, so he has all the baby boys killed off. But this little boy's mother saves him by putting him in a basket she had fabricated and, and, and covers it with pitch and tar, makes it waterproof. And she puts this basket into the Nile River and she just prays to God that he'll survive somehow. And he ends up floating downstream to where he's picked up by the daughter of Pharaoh. And she adopts him and raises him as her own and she names him Moses. Many of you know the story of Moses, right? And then through even more dramatic, dramatic events that we can't cover right now, Moses ends up being called by God to lead the people out of slavery out of Egypt. He, he, had, he had wandered off from Egypt and he'd become a shepherd. And years later, God calls him back and says, I want you to go and I want you to challenge Pharaoh. Now, he's, he's saying, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go, to let the Israelites go. Now, can you picture this? This old raggedy shepherd comes back. He's been gone for 40 years or something like that. He comes back and he stands before Pharaoh and he's going to say, let my people go. Pharaoh's the most powerful man in the world at this time, the largest army. He's surrounded by authorities and officials and covered in, 
in you know glorious clothing, and he's pompous, and he thinks he's a god on earth. And Moses, the shepherd, is going to go stand before him and pick a fight. I mean, it's just crazy. There was there was this time uh, when I was in high school. I think I was a junior, and my my little brother was in eighth grade, and he was playing on a baseball team, and he was getting picked on by a guy. And and it really bothered me when I heard about this, and I wanted to come to my brother's defense and care for him. Um, I, it wasn't always like that. Like, we didn't always get along when we were little. So those of you who have boys who fight, like, someday they will get along, hopefully, right? So you can take heart. But anyway, I decide that I'm going to go and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend my brother. And my brother was recalling this story for me recently, and I don't remember it. I think I've burned it from my brain. I remember parts of it, but not to the detail that he did. He says that, that I came peeling into the, the dirt parking lot in my Barracuda, you know, my cool car, and I come in there, and he says that I got out, and my shirt was over my shoulder. Like, I guess I was shirtless. I don't know what I was thinking, um, and, and my hair my hair doesn't get longer, it just gets bigger, so I kind of had this like afro thing going on, and I had these big long sideburns, and I'm like walking up making a scene, and I walk up and I lean on the fence, and I'm going to pick a fight with this guy who's picking on my brother. Now, here's an important part of the story, it wasn't a kid on the team who was picking on him, it was actually one of the coaches, and uh, this coach was a former teacher of mine who I never really liked, he was kind of a meathead, and and, and, and so I'm there, and I'm, I'm like verbally picking a fight with him, my brother tells me. And, and so, and you can picture this, this coach was like six foot tall, like 275. I was smaller than I am even now, like scrawny little man. And I'm picking a fight with this guy. It was totally ridiculous. Uh, he was, he, let's just say he was unimpressed and unintimidated by me, and rightly so. This is what Moses probably seems like when he's going before Pharaoh and he's saying, God says, let my people go. But if you know the story, you know that Pharaoh refuses. So God sends plague after plague to do battle with this this evil, enslaving, power-hungry man. And each time Pharaoh says, no, I will not let them go. And God sends plagues of of boils on their skin and and gnats, millions of gnats that are in their ears and their mouth and their nose and frogs hopping all over the place into their bedrooms and into their palaces and locusts that come and destroy the crops and and then eventually even total darkness that settles over land for three days as a warning to let the people go. But still, Pharaoh was unrelenting until God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh one more time to warn him that the worst is yet to come if he doesn't relent. And he warns Pharaoh that God is going to send this this angel of death that's going to sweep over the land and kill all the firstborn sons of Egypt unless he lets the Israelites go. But Pharaoh refuses. Can I just say something here? That that if if you read the Old Testament and you struggle to understand some of the, the, the violence that we see there, Trust me, I'm there with you. Like, I get it. I understand the struggle that we see there. One of the things I want to point out today is that God is doing everything he can to preserve Israel's family line going back to Eve. And there's some of that in play here in this story. So you can just keep that in mind when you're reading the Old Testament, that God is doing what he can to preserve the family line so that Israel survives and the rescuer comes from them. So so God is warning, Moses warning Pharaoh that this, this angel of death is going to come and, and he's telling that the firstborn sons are going to die and if he doesn't relent. And, and at the same time that he's warning them, he's warning the Egyptians, God is telling Israel what they should do. And uh, if you want to look there, you can read it now or, or later this week. In Exodus 12, 
it says this. At the same time that Pharaoh is being warned, it says this. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Um, they're, and they're supposed to, to, to determine the amount of the lamb that's needed in accordance with how big the family is and how much each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. When, so they're supposed to care for this lamb kind of in their family and among their presence. Uh, he says, take care of it until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of their houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. So it's this this quick, quickly formed bread. It's kind of symbolic of the, how speedily they would need to leave Egypt. Verse 12, it says, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day for you to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Do you hear what's going on there, friends? God is yet again using a sacrificed, innocent animal to cover his children, to mark them as his own, to set them apart. A symbol that death should pass over them and go elsewhere. They are protected by the blood of this innocent lamb. This is why it came to be known as Passover. It's the Passover feast. And so what happens? Pharaoh relents after the firstborn are killed, and and even his firstborn is killed. And after 430 years of slavery, the scriptures say that Pharaoh relents, and he finally says, go, take your people, and go and worship your God. So the people of Israel are freed to go and to head for the land that God had promised to Abraham so many years earlier. And then, as the people are escaping across the desert, Pharaoh realizes what he's done and he regrets it. He says, why, why, why have I done this? How could I let them go? So he amasses this huge army and he throws everything he's got at Moses and the people of God and starts pursuing them. He's trying desperately to keep them enslaved. And he pursues the people of Israel all the way to the edge of the Red Sea. And then they're facing certain death, certain death in front of them because they can't pass through the water and certain death behind them because they're being pursued by the enemy. And they're facing this certain death until God tells Moses to raise his staff up and point it out over the water. And it it spreads the water left and right so that it it parts. And they pass through on dry ground, Scripture says, and they start walking through the Red Sea. This certain death on their left and right of solid water. And they pass through on dry ground until they come to the other side. And so they pass through this certain death and they're on the other side. and, And Pharaoh pursues them through the Red Sea. And we see that this death closes back in on top of him and crushes him and his army and they they're destroyed so every year the israelites celebrate this passover commemorating their freedom from slavery and death they take unleavened bread and they and they break it and they share it remembering how quickly they left egypt they take different cups of wine and retell the story of god's defeat of the evil king pharaoh of the miracle of being saved from certain death or being set free from slavery, and of the Passover lamb 
the death of an innocent that would lead to their lives. And they even celebrate with a cup of wine symbolic of the coming rescuer that they still wait for. They celebrate the triumph of good over evil, of light over darkness, and of life over death. And God would take that nation of Israel that had escaped from Egypt and he would eventually move them into the land he promised under the leadership of Joshua. He would provide all that they needed. He would end up having them make a tabernacle or a temple where his presence would come and dwell and they were supposed to go and worship him there and and they'd be a light to the Gentiles like the Abraham covenant promised and the world was supposed to come and worship God there because of their influence. He gave them a new covenant on Mount Sinai, a new law to live out. Uh, he gave them laws to live by and a way to, to care for one another, to keep healthy, to use fair judgments and fair trade and days to celebrate and an ethic to live by. And Friends, the Old Testament is not just a, a collection of laws and, and rules that the people needed to obey. It was actually a law of love. It wasn't about legalism. It was about how to honor God and how to live in a good way towards your neighbor and how to love them well. It's a law of love. And when you follow out the rest of Israel's history, though, you see that they continue to stumble in upholding the law of love. Time and time again, they live for themselves. They don't live as image bearers of God. Rather than living as a light to the Gentiles and helping people worship God, they they hate other nations. They worship false gods. They start sacrificing their own kids to God and this, or to, to, to idols. And, and there's this debauchery and, and idolatry. And they don't take care of refugees and foreigners, the prophets say. It's just a messed up situation. And it's full of bad news. And God eventually scatters them into exile, where they end up enslaved again. No longer living in the promised land. No longer receiving the blessing of God's provision. And most painfully, No longer living in God's presence. You see, the temple had been destroyed and God's presence had left and they were scattered to Babylon and Assyria. And it looks like evil is triumphing over good. It looks like the darkness is growing stronger while the light is fading. And it looks like death will triumph and not life. That hate will win the day, not love. It's bad news, but if you know this this story, you know that what God has been doing for centuries is preserving the family line of Eve. He's been preserving them as scattered as they were. He's been preserving the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the people of Israel, going all the way back to Eve, keeping his promise alive that he would lead them into a promised land and that he would be their God and they would be his people. And that one would come from their line who would crush the enemy of God. And so while Israel is again enslaved by a foreign leader, by foreign countries and leaders, for 400 years they call out to God again to rescue them. God sends a baby to be born under the rule of Rome and Caesar. God sends a baby to be born to a woman named Mary. And an evil king who hears that all these boys are being born is concerned that one of them is going to take his throne. So another evil king has all the baby boys killed for fear of losing power. But, but this mother, Mary, and her fiancé or husband, Joseph, know that they can escape with this baby who they've named Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. And they escape and they keep him hidden from this evil king. 
And angels come and proclaim good news to all the world, a light to the Gentiles. Can you hear it? The promise, the blessing of nations has come in the, in the baby Jesus. Uh, we have a picture. I'm going to put this picture up uh, on the screen for you to look at. And it's, this, it's a great portrayal of, of, a, of a saddened Eve being consoled by the, the pregnant Mary who's pregnant with Jesus. And you notice Mary's foot is crushing the head of the serpent, the enemy of God, the devil, however you want to call him, under her foot. And you see this fulfillment of the promise coming to fruition, that one from Eve would come and crush the enemy of God. It's a beautiful picture. We're going to leave that up there for a little bit for you to look at. And you can just think about that if you want to. And just see the beauty of this image of God's promised rescuer coming to crush the enemy of God. Jesus would be the one to uphold the covenant, both sides of it, that that Abraham never could. He's a true Israelite, a true fully human man, representative of all of Israel and all of humanity. He's an image-bearing son of God who would live out the law of love perfectly. The Apostle Paul, in that same chapter 1 of Colossians, in verse 15, says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him, by Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among uh, from among the dead. This is, he says this because of his resurrection. He's the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Paul is saying how great Jesus is. He's He's, he's beautiful, he's perfect, he's powerful, he's sinless. But what we end up seeing in the story of Jesus is the deep-rootedness of Israel and all of humanity's sin. Jesus lives a life completely free of evil, completely innocent, loving the people around him, crossing you know, barriers and lines of wealth and poverty and, and crossing gender lines and, and, and talking to women who were never honored in their culture. He's working with with prostitutes and with synagogue leaders, high and low in society, healing the sick and the blind and the lame and loving and loving and loving the people around him. Like Moses, we see that he went head to head with the religious legalist leaders. You know, Moses would would go to battle against Pharaoh. Jesus goes to battle against these religious legalists who are holding the people down. And he goes head to head with political ruling powers of the day. And he says, I have a different kingdom that's superior to yours. And Yet what does humanity do? It colludes with the enemy of God to kill God himself. We see that in Jesus' life that the enemy of God is is throwing all that he has at Jesus. If you read the Gospels, you see this, that that the darkness is kind of clouding around Jesus. All these, these bizarre things happen, like demons lashing out at him. And you see the enemy is throwing everything he can to stop Jesus, to snuff him out, to get the rescuer to to end and to be quiet. The people that have been waiting for a Savior to come end up betraying him, beating him, spitting on him, and crucifying him on a criminal's cross. 
This is the depth of humanity's problem and rebellion and sin. It makes it so clear how deep inside the kingdom of darkness we really are and how enslaved we really are that someone so good could be viewed so as so bad. And so Jesus is murdered on a cross, the death of another innocent lamb. His blood spread across the tops and the sides of the beams of the cross. The enemy of God has won, and darkness literally covered the earth again, and hope felt lost. Can you imagine what the disciples were feeling? What people who were thinking he was the rescuer were feeling? Until three days later, Jesus comes out the other side of certain death. He had passed through certain death and comes out alive. Now think about this with me. God loves humanity and wants humanity to have a full life in him. But the enemy of God hates humanity and wants humanity to end up in death. It's what he started in the garden. He wanted to see Adam and Eve end in death. And it's been this battle of good versus evil, of light versus darkness, of slavery versus freedom, life versus death, God versus the enemy ever since. And here in Jesus' death, the enemy appears to have won. The sins of the world are on Jesus, and it comes to its full fruition, death. But in the resurrection, we see that God has the ultimate victory. Jesus has been declared Lord of all because death could not hold him down because of the power of God in him. We see that sin does not have the last word. That death is not final for those who believe in God. That just like with the Passover lamb, when we, when we figuratively take the blood of the innocent lamb of Jesus' sacrifice and paint it on the, the doorposts of our lives, that death has no power over us anymore. That despite our sin, we have been moved from the king, into the kingdom of light and life now and for eternity. Not just so we can fly off someday into heaven, but so that we can live the light and the life now that Jesus promised. We see that the scariest thing of all, death, has no power over us. God has had the ultimate victory. The power of sin that leads to death has been defeated. Friends, our identity as a church and what our identity can be as individuals is people who believe in the ultimate victory of God over sin and death through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Friends, this is the gospel. That we are all more sinful than we care to admit, but that God loves us more than we'll probably ever realize. And that he loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to live as a sinless human being, fulfilling both God's side of the covenant and the side that Abraham and the children of Israel never fully could, living out the law of love. And in his resurrection, the kingdom of light and life and God was brought to earth so that all who believe in Jesus could find life now and for eternity. So listen, if you're like me, which I assume at least some of you are, you're thinking, okay, so what? Who cares, Jim? Like, so Jesus lived, died, even if I believe in his resurrection, why is that good news for me today? Why are you telling me your church is so centered on this? Why does it matter? Well, for starters, I, I mean, think about this. If death is no longer a threat, if it's no longer the end of us and we believe that we will live forever, 
don't some of our daily struggles start to not be as monumental? Don't some of the hardships that we go through seem as not a big a deal? Now, I'm not saying that tough things we go through don't bring anxiety or bring mourning or sadness. I get it. I'm not saying it, it, it does away with those, but, but they lessen in their severity because we realize I will live forever and these will fade into the background, right? I mean, for starters, that's part of what this means to us. Or if you really believe that God created everything, that he spun stars and planets into existence, that he spoke land and, and seas into existence, that he breathed you into existence and he holds all things together, if you believe that that God loves you and is for you and wants your good, could you become less dependent on your circumstances for satisfaction? Could you believe that, that he is for you and will defend you? Could you perhaps not need so much validation from the world around you of your worth because God, who holds all things together, says he loves you and he's for you? What can man do to me? Or if you believe that God is, is for you and loves you so deeply despite your sin and despite the fact that you could never do enough legalistic works to prove it, wouldn't that give you freedom? You could live with a sense of, I don't need to prove myself anymore because God has already proven his love to me. And I am seen as righteous in his eyes because of Jesus. I also think that when, when we know that we're loved by God and we really believe that, and we believe that I'm sinful and you're sinful and everybody's jacked up and broken like me, it means I can confess sins and say, hey, I need help with this. Can you walk with me through this? Because guess what? I don't care what you think of me. I know you're just as messed up as me. Or, if we get to look around and see that everyone is just as messed up as, as we are, it starts to give us grace for people to realize we're all in this together. You're messed up, I'm messed up. We all need the gospel. Let's live it out together. Imagine how different the world would be if everyone realized they didn't need to prove themselves. They didn't need to, to keep all the rules anymore. And, and they could literally live for the sake of of others, and they weren't just living for legalism or judgmentalism, and they, and they weren't just living for themselves to prove themselves. I mean, our world is so busy trying to prove itself all the time. Can you imagine if we could just love others and not worry about proving ourselves? Because God, who didn't spare his own son, wants our good and will provide for us. Imagine what it would look like. I believe it would change Nazareth. I believe it would change the valley and change the world if we lived for the sake of others, because God has given his life for us. One of the most practical things, okay, is I believe that it means we can be humble in our relationships with people. Because, I, like, I can, I can be humble in an argument with my wife or coworker or annoying parent or sibling because if we are confident that we are loved by God and the worst that could happen, death, has already been dealt with, what is a little dying to self and losing of pride and ego? Do you see it? Do you understand what I'm saying? When you're not afraid of death anymore and you're not afraid of dying to self because you already know that you're sinful but you're loved by God, who cares if you have to lose an argument and just lower your pride a little bit? Who cares if you've got to extend a little bit more grace to your kids or your coworker or your parents or whoever it is? You see, this has real practical implications. It's the ultimate victory of God being worked out in the continuing victory of God in our lives on a daily basis. We get to live in this. That is the good news, that we can become more and more free from sin and death through dying to self, through confession, through living in the goodness of God's love. And it's all because he loved us first and gave himself up for us as a ransom, 
freeing us from the control of sin and the result of death. That's the gospel. That is the good news. That is our identity as a church and what our identity can be when we know who we are in God and as followers of Jesus. What we're going to do right now is take communion together. And I know some of you come from maybe different liturgical backgrounds and you have experienced communion in different ways. Uh, I just want to tell you a little bit, this kind of the practical side of things uh, for this talk is that uh, our aim is to do communion once a month um, and to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Uh, And we might do it in different ways. Today, we're going to take it. It's going to be set up at the back of the room and as a station back there. And we're going to go and we're going to take it together. Um, But after you've had a little bit of time to process, you go back and take it as, as individuals um, there'll be times maybe where we pass it, uh, like maybe some of you are used to. Um, but if you're used to just getting a wafer or just doing part of this, uh, know that in the back we have bread and we have juice. Uh, you can go back and, and you're going to dip the bread into the juice and take that and uh, eat that as, as, as you're ready. Um, but I want you to think about something with me, that, that when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist as it's called in other churches, we are doing what Jesus instructed his disciples to do when they were celebrating the Passover meal together. He told them, when you do this, when you take this bread and and remember it, remember that this is my body given for you. It's no longer just symbolic of the Passover lamb, it's, it's remembering my body given for you. He says, when you drink this cup of, of wine, you are remembering the blood of the lamb on the doorposts in the Passover. Now you should remember my blood given for many for the forgiveness of sins and the passing over of death again. Friends, the gospel brings, and this is the gospel that we preach here, it brings a lot of freedom and hope. And it's not full of a bunch of, you have to do this, you should do this, you better do this, you've got to do this. It just doesn't have that in it. But if I could help you understand one thing, there is one have to when it comes to the gospel. You have to make a decision. You have to make a decision to believe that one time and, and then going forward to remind yourselves of the gospel, that you are set free in Jesus. So can I just encourage you right now that if you've not done that before, or you've not thought through that before, would, would today be the day that you decide, you know what, I want to believe that God loves me, that God is for me so much so that he sent Jesus to live and die on my behalf and to lead me into freedom and a new promised land and the presence of God. So uh, we're going to play some music now, and I'm going to ask that you would just sit and contemplate this for a few minutes, and then uh, when you are ready to to rise and go back and take communion as you're ready, and then just file your way back into your seats, um, and then we're going to sing a song together at the end of the service. Would you pray with me?